Jahangir often employed the term kanazaji, meaning devoted, familial, hereditary service in his memoirs. Rajputs, Turanis, Iranis, Indian Muslims, and even some Afghan emirs who termed themselves kanazads, born to the house, formed a large component of the nobility, if not quite a majority. All viewed Mughal service and preference within that service as their prerogative. Kanazaji retained the central values of discipleship, loyalty, devotion, and sacrifice in the emperor's service, but lacked its intensely emotional aspect. From boyhood, each Kanazad was imbued with a code of aristocratic and military honor. The honor of the warrior was compatible with dignified subordination to the emperor. Buttressing this ethos was the dynastic ideology of the Timurids, which still continued to shape and influence the sacral qualities ascribed to the Mughal emperor. John F. Richards, The Mughal Empire Assalamu alaikum. Welcome back to Season 9 of the Islamic History Podcast. This season, we are continuing our discussion of the Mughal Empire. This is Episode 9-7, Shah Jahan's Sons. Let's do a very quick recap of the previous episode. Emperor Shah Jahan continued the process started by Akbar the Great and tried to push south into the Deccan. Doing so, he inevitably wound up going to war against some of the Deccan sultanates. During the campaign, the Maratha commander, Shahaji, at times fought with the Mughals and at other times fought against them. Eventually, however, Shahaji was forced into exile and his son, Shivaji, took over his territory in the Deccan. Shivaji began conducting raids mostly against the Deccan Sultanate of Bijapur. Emperor Shah Jahan struck deals with the Deccan Sultanates, then attempted to expand his domain north into Central Asia. But after some initial success, the Mughals got bogged down in Termez, Uzbekistan, near the Afghanistan border. And eventually, the Mughals had to retreat back to India. The following year, the Persians of the Safavid Empire occupied Kandahar, and despite several attempts, the Mughals were not able to get it back. Emperor Shah Jahan blamed his son, Prince Aurangzeb, for these failures and sent him away to govern the Deccan. This right there caused a rift in their relationship that never truly healed. When he arrived in the Deccan, Prince Aurangzeb realized the region was in bad financial shape. His talented minister of finance, Murashid Kuli Khan, got to work restructuring the Deccan's financial system, but Prince Aurangzeb needed cash immediately, and the only way to get that was to go on the warpath. And so let's continue our discussion of Aurangzeb in the Deccan. So Aurangzeb is about to go on the, on the warpath, and his first target was the Golconda Sultanate. The Golconda Sultanate, located in the modern Indian state of Telangana, was ruled by a very weak sultan. Now, Aurangzeb had to make up a reason to attack Golconda out of the blue, and the reason he had, and it wasn't really made up because it was true, the reason for his invasion, or for his planned invasion of Golconda, was its failure to pay its annual tribute. 
Also, the Golconda Sultanate had annexed land without Mughal approval. But Aurangzeb's true opportunity, the, op- the real opportunity he was looking for, was when a man named Mir Jumla, who was a Persian governor serving under the Sultan of Golconda, had grown a little bit too powerful. Mir Jumla had grown too powerful, and the Sultan of Golconda wanted to limit his influence. And when you want to limit someone's influence in these days, that usually means confiscating their property or imprisoning them, or what is more likely, ending their life. And so Mir Jumla sought protection from the Mughals, and in return for this protection, he offered his services to them. With Mir Jumla on his side, in January 1656, Prince Aurangzeb sent his son Muhammad Sultan with an army to attack Golconda. Aurangzeb followed up right behind that with an even larger invasion army. With the Mughal armies bearing down on him, the Sultan of Golconda fell back to his fortified stronghold, thereby leaving his capital, Hyderabad, along with the treasury within the capital, vulnerable to the Mughals and Aurangzeb's son, Muhammad Sultan, captured Hyderabad and the treasury. In February 1656, Aurangzeb arrived with his military and he began besieging the fort where the Sultan was holed up. The Sultan tried to make amends, he tried to send gifts to Aurangzeb, he made all sorts of promises, but as we mentioned before, Prince Aurangzeb was a man of business. He was very blunt. He didn't play these games. He wasn't a politician. He wasn't trying to, trying to make nice with anybody. So none of those things worked. So when that didn't work, the Sultan of Golconda reached out to Aurangzeb's brother, Dadashiko, who was way up in Delhi, and asked him for relief against uh, Prince Aurangzeb. Dadashiko, as we mentioned in the previous episode, was almost the complete opposite of Prince Aurangzeb. Dadashiko was also kind of jealous of Aurangzeb's military success, and so he used this opportunity to convince their father, Emperor Shah Jahan, to order Aurangzeb to fall back. He convinced his father to seek reparations from the Sultan of Golconda rather than allow Prince Aurangzeb to capture the entire Sultanate. Shah Jahan agreed with his son and sent a message ordering Prince Aurangzeb to lift the siege and accept payment from the Sultanate instead. Prince Aurangzeb had no choice but to obey, but he made sure he got significant compensation from the Sultanate of Golconda. The Sultanate of Golconda had to give up a district called Ramgir to the Mughals. The sultan also had to pay all of the outstanding payments, all the outstanding tribute payments that were still owed to the Mughals. And then on top of that, he had to pay 10 million rupees, perhaps as compensation or additional tribute or punishment, whatever. He had to pay 10 million rupees on top of that. And then finally, one of the sultan's daughters, that is one of the sultan of Golconda's daughters, was married to Aurangzeb's son, Muhammad Sultan. Now, with this marriage, there was an unspoken agreement that Muhammad Sultan would inherit the Sultanate of Golconda when his father-in-law died because the Sultan had no male heirs. So with all that, on May 17, 1656, the siege was lifted and Prince Aurangzeb returned to Aurangabad, which was the capital that he had established in the Deccan. Mir Jumla, that is the Persian governor who had defected from Golconda to join the Mughals, he went on to Delhi and became the Mughal prime minister or vizier. 
So Aurangzeb got the quick injection of cash that he needed, and so he turned his focus to the Sultanate of Bijapur. Sultan Adil Shah of Bijapur died in November 1656. The Sultanate of Bijapur was located in the modern Indian state of Karnataka. After the Sultan of Bijapur died, the new king or the new Sultan of Bijapur, Ali Adil Shah II, faced a bunch of rebellions against his rule. Aurangzeb saw this as an opportunity and used it to and used it as an excuse to attack this last remaining free stronghold of the Deccan states. His excuse was basically that Ali Adil Shah II, the new Sultan of Bijapur, was not the legitimate heir, and he didn't belong on the throne. So Aurangzeb began offering bribes to the various Bijapur military officers and to many of their soldiers, convincing them to abandon the Sultan of Bijapur and join the Mughals. So finally, in February 1657, Aurangzeb and his new best friend, Mir Jumla, that is the former governor in Golconda, marched on the city of Bidar and besieged his fortress. And after a month, the fortress was finally captured. From there, they marched on to Kalyani, which was about 35 miles west of Bidar. Within two months, a two-month-long siege, that fell as well to Prince Aurangzeb. And from there, he systematically defeated all resistance in Bijapur. So by July 1657, remember this all started in February 1657. By July 1657, all of the major cities of Bijapur had been captured by Prince Aurangzeb. And it appeared that the conquest of Bijapur was all but done. However, that hater up in Delhi, Darashiko, interfered again. He did not want Aurangzeb to get too much glory, and Darashiko again interfered, intervened, and convinced their father to order Aurangzeb to withdraw from Bijapur in exchange for monetary payments. On top of that, Emperor Shah Jahan recalled the, re the military reinforcements that he had sent to Aurangzeb, cut off his supplies to Prince Aurangzeb, and so Prince Aurangzeb had no choice but to sign a peace treaty with the Sultanate of Bijapur. Bijapur had to pay 10 million rupees and surrender a bunch of forts to the Mughals, and with that, Prince Aurangzeb withdrew back to uh, Ahmednagar. All right, so now with all of this going on, in Bijapur, at the same time, Shivaji was getting kind of ambitious. Remember who Shivaji was? First of all, Shivaji was the son of Shahaji, and Shahaji was a Maratha commander initially under the command of, initially under the service of Malik Ambar. Shivaji had some success in Pune. Pune is near Mumbai. Just to catch up real quick about what happened, the Sultan of Bijapur had imprisoned Shahaji, that is Shivaji's father, in retaliation for Shivaji capturing various fortresses that belonged to Bijapur. Once that happened, once his father was imprisoned, Shivaji sought help from the Mughals by going through Aurangzeb's brother, Murad Baksh, not Darashiko, Murad Baksh. And with that, he agreed to join the Mughals with his 5,000 soldiers. And so the Mughal emperor, the Mughal empire, I should say, applied pressure to Bijapur and ultimately Shahaji, Shivaji's father, was released. So this gave Shivaji a sense of confidence because he was successful in, in conquering and capturing several fortresses in Pune. 
and getting his father released. And so he got kind of big for his britches there. He got kind of overconfident and big-headed. So he began, after his father was released, he resumed his raids against Bijapur, and he got the idea for some weird reason to start attacking Mughal territory in the Deccan, and that right there was a bit too much. He had gone too far. He bit off more than he could chew. When Prince Aurangzeb found out, he sent his officers and just smacked Shivaji all over the place. Shivaji had to flee into the Western Ghat Mountains, the Western Ghat Mountains with his remaining troops. And Aurangzeb would have probably pursued him into the mountains, but with the monsoon season approaching, he decided uh, to just let it go and not go after him. So this was all happening around the same time that Aurangzeb was fighting Bijapur. After Bijapur capitulated to Aurangzeb's demands, Shivaji used this opportunity to try to make amends with Aurangzeb. He wrote a letter begging for mercy from Aurangzeb and promising to remain loyal to the Mughals. Aurangzeb went ahead and accepted it because he was really more focused on things happening up in Delhi what was going on at the royal court to the north, and his father's health was failing. We're going to get into all that in just a moment. And he didn't really want to worry about Shivaji. In his mind, Shivaji was a minor deal. But long term, this would prove to be a big mistake. I'm going to read a, an excerpt from one of the many research papers I read in putting together this podcast. Just listen here. Pearson puts Aurangzeb in the dock once again when he contends that what sounded the death knell of the great Mughals was the emergence of Shivaji and his Marathas as a parallel powerful body. Worse still, while Aurangzeb generally blundered in his dealings with the Marathas on four specific occasions, according to Pearson's assessment, his unwise and tactless handling of the rebels was decisive. In 1657, when as Subadar of the Deccan, he failed to avail himself of the opportunity of crushing Shivaji, who had not yet grown too powerful. In 1659, when Shaista Khan's debacle occurred. In 1664, when Shivaji sacked Surat with impunity. And finally, in 1666, when the arch-rebel was presented to the emperor at Agra. Shivaji and his band of followers were undoubtedly a formidable force in the later half of the 17th century, and the fact remains that Aurangzeb and his nobles failed to suppress them. It may also be conceded that Marathas, by their perseverance, audacity, and vigor, had largely contributed to the general weakening of the empire and to the erosion of imperial prestige, time, and energy. Hamida Khatun Nakvi, Aurangzeb's Policies and the Decline of the Mughal Emperor, The Journal of Asian Studies, November 1977. All right, so I'm going to basically summarize what that excerpt had just said. And really, this is the same feeling that I got also while doing the research on this era of Mughal history. In short, Prince Aurangzeb had the opportunity right here to nip the Maratha threat in the bud. But he was just too focused on what was happening in the royal court, and he probably didn't consider the Marathas a real threat. He probably just considered them some sort of outlaw band. But it's not just this time. You can, you can forgive one mistake. Not only this time, but many more times in the future, Aurangzeb missed opportunities to deal with Shivaji and the Marathas decisively. And so by the time he was ready to deal with them, the Marantas had grown strong enough to offer sustained resistance. Now, this is all going to make sense in the future 
inshallah. So just hold tight. But this was one of the more disappointing parts of the Mughal Empire, I suppose. There are many disappointing parts, especially what's coming up next. The beginning of the Fraternal Civil War. Fraternal Civil War. In September 1657, Emperor Shah Jahan fell very sick. And there were many doubts about whether he would even recover from the sickness. I mean, he had a really bad. He could not urinate. He had a bad fever. He had swollen legs. His stomach pains were so bad he could barely eat. And so naturally, everyone connected to the emperor was worried what would happen if he died. Well, in fact, Shah Jahan's health did improve, but... He wasn't really quite ready to take the throne back, and he also wanted his favorite son, Dadashiko, to ascend the throne. So Shah Jahan was, was willing to support him in achieving this goal, and so he decided, that is, the emperor decided to take some time off, about a month or so, to recover from his sickness. And he went and relocated to Agra to recuperate and appointed Dadashigo to rule the empire in his stead as his stand-in until he was fully recovered. So with this, Dadashiko was now in charge of the Mughal Empire. Dadashiko used this opportunity to enforce what we will call today an information blackout. An information blackout regarding the emperor's health. He wanted to keep his brothers in the dark about how their father was doing, about whether he was alive or not. He was hoping that if he could, could uh, cause confusion, if he, if he could keep them from knowing about their father's true condition, that would prevent them from attacking. This tactic also allowed Dara to create an air of confusion and uncertainty and with this, chaos began to engulf the empire because rumors and plots were spreading everywhere about whether the emperor Shah Jahan was alive or not. And this helped Dadashiko to consolidate his own power in Agra and Delhi. Remember, Dadashiko was the, was the politician. He grew up in the court. He loved this. Well, I won't say he loved it, but this was his environment. Controlled chaos was his environment. He liked this sort of thing where he could have secrets and keep some people in the, in the darkness and some people in the light and not everybody knew what was going on. This was where Dadashiko thrived. Now, there were four main contenders for the throne and they were all prepared to seize power. As soon as, as, soon as the soul left Shah Jahan's body, these four brothers were ready to take the throne and fight for it. First, of course, there was Dadashiko. He was about 42 years old at this time. He was Shah Jahan's oldest son, as well as the governor of Punjab. He was in charge, at least in name, at this time of the government in Delhi. He had lived in Delhi most of his life with the emperor. He had spent most of his adult life right by his father's side. And so he was very comfortable with the royal court and court life. However, the downside about Dadashiko is that he had very limited military experience. Nonetheless, he was the heir apparent. There was a problem with him being the heir apparent. He was definitely supported by the liberal Muslims and the liberals and the Hindus of the empire, but he was very much not supported and disapproved of by the Sunni Muslims of the Mughal empire. He was disapproved of by the major Muslim bloc of the empire. The main problem with, with Dadashiko is that he had syncretic beliefs about religion. And we'll 
talk about them more perhaps in future episodes, inshallah. So you'll see what I mean by this. But he held syncretic beliefs about religion. Basically, much like his great-grandfather, or great-great-grandfather, Akbar the Great, he believed that all religions were compatible. He believed that essentially all different religions were different paths that still led to God's mercy, that still led to Allah. And he advocated for continuous evolution of religion, including Islam, and mutual understanding between religions. Shah Shuja was 41 years old. He was Shah Jahan's second son and the governor of Bengal, Bihar, and Orissa. Shah Shuja was very intelligent, but he could sometimes be pretentious and arrogant as well. He followed Shia traditions and therefore he had the support of the Shia Muslim community in the Mughal Empire. The next contender was Aurangzeb. Aurangzeb was 39 years old at this time. He was Shah Jahan's third son and the governor of the Deccan. Prince Aurangzeb, as we all well know, was a strict Sunni Muslim. He did not play around with that. He had the most military experience having fought in both the Deccan and Central Asia. And he was also supported by the Prime Minister, Mir Jumla. Finally, the fourth contender was Prince Murad Bakhsh. He was the governor of Gujarat. He was 33 years old. He was known to have been a very brave man, but not a very smart guy. And we'll see some of the dumb stuff he does in, the, in a, just a few moments. So just like the Ottomans at this time, the Mughals were going to have to decide the successor to the throne through warfare not through the oldest son or the oldest child or the oldest relative or any of that stuff. No, succession is going to go through the last man standing. Each of these sons, they were governors of large imperial provinces. Therefore, they all had large armies under their command. And with this, with the, with the emperor's health in question, with his life even in question, they weren't even sure if he was, al- if he was still alive. The fratricidal war was coming. Each brother made their first moves. Shah Shuja was the first. He went and declared himself the sultan. He assumed that his father, Shah Jahan, had died. And so with that, he declared himself the sultan of the new emperor. He had the khutbah read in his name in Bengal. He also began minting coins in his name. And then he adopted this very grandiose title, Abu Faiz Nasiruddin Muhammad Tamir III Alexander II Shah Shuja Bahadur Ghazi. It's a long one there. And then he led his army out of Bengal and towards Delhi to take his supposed rightful place on the throne. Dada Shiko knew uh, Shah Shuja was on the way, but he wasn't really concerned about Shah Shuja. His main thing was to try to weaken Aurangzeb, Prince Aurangzeb, the most, because he knew that Aurangzeb was the most dangerous opponent of the three brothers. So he summoned, the first thing he did was summon Mir Jumla, who was the prime minister and who was also supporting Aurangzeb, the first thing that Dada Shiko did was summon Mir Jumla and his army back to Delhi. And the caveat is, if Mir Jumla refused, then his family was still in Delhi and they would be at the mercy of Dada Shiko. So in order to protect him, Aurangzeb had Mir Jumla arrested on a fake charge. So when the message came, the message was returned to Dada Shiko that Mir Jumla cannot come because he's riding away in a prison. And so that was how Aurangzeb was able to protect Mir Jumla. 
So with that plan failed, Darashiko then ordered Prince Murad Bakhsh to go and occupy Berard. He was hoping that if Prince Murad would occupy Berard, this would allow Murad's army to intercept Aurangzeb's army as Aurangzeb tried to move north. But this plan also failed because Prince Murad, just like his brother Prince Shah Shuja, immediately proclaimed himself the emperor as well. And with this declaration, he began gathering money to prepare for this war against his brothers, whom he believed were the pretenders to the throne. The first thing he did was kill the Mughal minister of finance in Gujarat. That was a weird one. So I'm saying that he was kind of dumb. Prince Murad was the governor of Gujarat, but the minister of finance in Gujarat worked for the emperor and not for the governor. But I guess he was in his way, and so Prince Murad had the minister of finance killed, then ransacked the treasury of Gujarat, and then had his army loot the city of Surat, which is in southern Gujarat. Aurangzeb, however, he was the only one who didn't make any overt moves or proclamations. He didn't come out and say, I'm the emperor. He didn't have the khutbah written in his name. He didn't have any coins minted in his name. He quietly prepared for the war that was coming. He was already supported by Mir Jumla and his forces. Furthermore, Aurangzeb had his sister, Roshan Arabegum, in Delhi, acting as his spy and his informant within the court, so he was able to get updated information about what Darashiko was doing. And also remember, Arangzim had the most military experience of all these other brothers, and his soldiers were also the most exper experienced because they had just recently concluded the campaigns in the Deccan Sultanates against Golconda and Bijapur. Finally, the Deccan was far enough away from all of these other places, uh, Bengal, Delhi, and Gujarat, that he didn't really have to worry about any of these guys coming south to invade him, at least not for the time being. He moved in silence and held back from making any sudden moves until he was certain that their father was dead. But at the same time, there was a catch. There was a catch because he couldn't let his brothers gain too much of a foothold. And he didn't want to give Donashiko time to start trying to bribe his officers and bribe his allies to defect and come over to his side. So Prince Aurangzeb had to make some moves, but he had to do them quietly. So Prince Aurangzeb reached out to his two other brothers and convinced them to form an alliance against Dadashiko. Now, there are some reports, some uh, historians who say that this secret coalition between the three brothers might have been made as early as 1652. Their father fell sick in 1657, so this might have been an agreement, an alliance made even five years before that. Aurangzeb, despite his disagreements and his rivalry with Dadashiko, he had remained on good terms with Shah Shuja and Murad, his two other brothers. He had told them that he had no imperial ambitions. He told Shah Shuja and Murad Baksh that all he wanted to do was live a simple life and worship Allah. He didn't want to become the emperor, but he had to do this. He had to fight against Dadashiko and keep Dadashiko from taking the throne because Dadashiko would destroy the empire's Islamic foundations. So he convinced his brothers that that's, this was why they were joining in, a, in an alliance against Dadashiko, not because Aurangzeb wanted the throne, not because he wanted to become the emperor, but because he wanted to stop Dadashiko from bringing Tarut, from bringing un-Islamic practices, from removing Islam in the empire. 
he promised his two brothers that he was willing to share the empire between them once they got rid of Dadashiko and removed the threat that he represented. Now, Emperor Shah Jahan, still up in Agra, somehow or another he learned about this alliance. He recognized the threat that this alliance would pose to Dadashiko's authority. So the Emperor Shah Jahan secretly sent letters to all three brothers promising to support them if they turned against their other brothers. That's the thing. The father sent a letter to Arangzeb, to Shah Shuja, to Murad, telling them that if they turned against the other brothers, then he would support them. This foolish move sealed the emperor's fate. Remember, the three brothers did not know. They weren't sure if he was alive or dead. But once they received these letters from their father, this confirmed that he was alive. Secondly, it proved to Arangzeb that his father was just as dangerous as Dadashiko. And so with this information now, the three princes sent a letter to Shah Jahan, Emperor Shah Jahan, expressing their intention to visit him. They wanted to visit their father. Yes, they were coming with a bunch of armies, with a bunch of soldiers and weapons of war and cannons and, and all sorts of things, but all they wanted to do was visit their father. Once again, Shah Shuja made the first move. So he led his army from Bengal and reached the Hindu holy city of Benares on January 24th, 1658. Benares is also known as Varanasi, and it's about 400 miles east of Delhi. Dadashiko, when he heard that uh, Shah Juja was on the warpath, he sent a large army, which was commanded by his son, Suleiman Shiko, to go and confront Shah Juja. Suleiman Shiko was joined by one of Dada's allies, a man named Jai Singh. Jai Singh was a Rajput general serving under the Mughal Empire, and he was also the son of Raja Man Singh, who had initially fought against Akbar. Well, the two armies clashed at Bahadur Garda in February 1658, which is just outside of Delhi and the modern Haryana state of India. Shah Shuja, the brother, was defeated and fled back to Bengal. As he was running, Suleiman Shiko, that is Dada Shiko's brother, pursued him and pursued him as far as Bihar, which was nearly 400 miles away. So now Shah Shuja is out the picture. So it's just Prince Madad and Prince Aurangzeb coming together to fight against Dada Shiko. In February 1658, Aurangzeb left the Deccan to go and meet up with Murad. Remember, Murad is in Gujarat. Now, Dada Shiko up in Delhi, he knows these two are coming after him. They're coming up to get him. So he sends another force to try to head off this alliance so these two can't meet up. This new force is led by uh, the Raja of Mawar, which is in Rajasthan today, a man named Jaswant Singh. So his deal, Jaswan Singh, his goal is to meet Aurangzeb and prevent Aurangzeb from connecting with Murad. The two armies met at Darmat and fought on April 15, 1658. Darmat is in the Madhya Pradesh, about 400 miles south of Delhi. Well, to put it short, Jaswan Singh was absolutely no match for Aurangzeb and he was completely defeated. And with Jaswan Singh swept to the side, Aurangzeb's forces continued on and eventually joined up with Murad Bakhsh's forces from the Gujarat. And together, the two armies, really three armies, continued marching north towards Delhi. I say three armies because we also have Mirda Jumla's army as well, who was an ally of Prince Aurangzeb. So now Dada Shiko is running out of options. 
He's running out of options. Uh, his father, Shah Jahan, Emperor Shah Jahan, is fully recovered by this time, and he sees what is happening. He sees his brothers fighting against each other, and he is completely appalled. So he tries to convince Dada to let his brothers come to Agra. He wants to meet with them. Maybe he can talk with them, convince them to stop all this. But Dada was very concerned. He was worried. He was scared after the loss at Dharmat. After Jaswan Singh was defeated at Dharmat, he is really concerned because now there is nothing between him and Aurangzeb and Murad. So Dada Shiko, he ignores his father's advice, says, nah, we're not going to do that. Now, Dada Shiko had sent a letter to his son, Suleiman Shiko, to come and help Jaswan Singh against Prince Aurangzeb. But because Jaswan Singh had chased Shah Shuja all the way across North India, he was too far away to respond in time. So now there was nothing between the combined forces of Prince Aurangzeb and Prince Murad Baksh and Dada Shiko. So Dadashiko decided that he had no other choice but to personally march out and meet this combined force with the few remaining forces that he had on his own. He was hoping to prevent the alliance, the allied princes, from crossing the Chambal River. If he could keep them from crossing the river, then that would give Suleiman Shiko time to catch up. But once again, as I said before, Aurangzeb was the experienced commander. He easily outmaneuvered Dadashiko's little plan. He just kept traveling downriver, which in this case was northeast. He just kept traveling with the army, Arongzeb that is. Prince Arongzeb and Prince Murad just kept traveling downriver, northeast, until they found a location shallow enough to cross over the river. And now they were right on the same side. And once they were across, they started marching west towards Agra. Dadashiko, he didn't want to fight them. He was hoping to just keep them from crossing the river through whatever means, arrows, bombardments, cannons, whatever he could to keep them from crossing the river. But now that they were on the same side of the river, he had no choice. He has to go and meet Aurangzeb in battle. His thing is to keep Aurangzeb and Murad from reaching Agra. And so Dadashiko, take his, he takes his army and he rushes up to go deal with Aurangzeb. And the two armies clashed at Samugara on May 29th, 1658, roughly eight miles east of Agra. Now, despite being horribly outnumbered, despite being very much outclassed because Orangzeb was definitely the better fighter, to be fair, Dadashiko put up a very good fight. This was a fierce battle. Murad Bakhshis, his elephant's howdah was so riddled with arrows that it was described as resembling a porcupine. Murad himself had been hit with, with arrows a few times. Nonetheless, despite Dadashiko's bravery, despite his valor, his lack of battle experience eventually did him in. As I mentioned, it was really three armies against Dadashiko's single army. Eventually, his elephant, that is Dada's elephant, was severely wounded. And when that happened, Dada panicked. An experienced commander would have probably asked for another elephant or did something to make sure what happened next didn't happen. Dada's elephant was injured. He hopped off the elephant, hopped on a horse, and fled the battlefield. And so when his soldiers, who were fighting for their lives and for his, when they witnessed the empty howdah on top of the elephant, they thought that he had been killed. 
And with his death, though he wasn't dead, he was just running for his life. But with his death, the army lost morale and they fled the battlefield also. And that was it. The battle was lost. Dada fled all the way back to Agra and arrived at Agra late at night. He grabbed his harem, his women basically, grabbed his valuables and all of his wealth that he could carry and headed for Delhi. And he just barely escaped before Aurangzeb and Murad arrived with their forces in Agra on June 1st. Now, despite this humiliating defeat, there was still hope for Dadashiko. He still had 5,000 loyal soldiers. And on top of that, his father still supported him because his father, Emperor Shah Jahan, wrote a letter to the governor of Delhi instructing him to open the treasury for Dada and give him whatever he needed. So Aurangzeb is now in Agra and he sets up camp at Bagi Noor, which means Garden of Light. This was one of the gardens in Agra that had been originally built by Babur, the founder of the Mughal Empire. Once he set up camp, he sent a letter to his father explaining his actions and seeking forgiveness. We're going to read an excerpt from this letter now. Obedience was my position, and I never went beyond my limit, for which all-knowing Allah is my witness. But, owing to the illness of your majesty, the prince, Dara, usurping all authority and bent upon propagating the religion of the Hindus and the idolaters and upon suppressing the faith of the prophet, had brought about chaos and anarchy throughout the empire, and no one had the courage to speak the truth to your majesty. Believing himself to be the rightful ruler, he, Dara, deposed your august majesty, as has been mentioned in my previous letters. Consequently, I started from Burhanpur, lest I should be held responsible for not providing a remedy for the disorders that were cropping up throughout the country. All the time, accepting the enemy of the true faith, Dara, siding with whom is a real sin, there was no one between us. As victories never gained without Allah's help, which is the result of true obedience, please notice how the divine assistance comes to my help. God forbid that with your majesty's connivance, the theories of the apostate, Dara, become translated into practice and the world gets darkened with infidelity. Under the circumstances, thanks are due to the master of fate for whatever has been brought about. All that I owe to you for my upbringing is far beyond any adequate expression of gratitude on the part of my poor self, and I cannot, on any account, forget your kindness and my responsibilities and allow myself for the sake of this short life to create any rancor in your heart. Whatever happened was due to the will of Allah and for the good of the country and nation. All right, so let me break that down for you, what, what Arangzeb is writing to his father. He is essentially saying that Dada Shiko had taken advantage of their father's illness and usurped the throne. Prince Arangzeb believed that he had no choice but to go to war against his brother in order to preserve Islam in the empire. He went on to say that his victory against Dada Shiko was evidence that Allah approved of his actions, that he would never hurt his father to whom he owed so much simply to gain something from this world. Emperor Shah Jahan, who is now holed up in Agra's citadel, its fortress, he received the letter and so he sent gifts and wrote back to Aurangzeb asking him to come and talk things out. Included in the gifts that he sent to Aurangzeb was a sword named Alamgir, which means world conqueror. 
And from that point forward, Aurangzeb was known as Aurangzeb Alamgir. Despite how much he loved this sword, however, Aurangzeb refused to meet his father, and instead he sent his son, Muhammad Sultan, with a message to his father to surrender the citadel. Of course, Emperor Shah Jahan refused, and when the emperor refused, Aurangzeb abandoned all pretenses. He no longer pretended that he was just trying to protect his father from Dadashiko and his religious, and his religious deviance. Prince Aurangzeb proceeded to besiege the citadel with his father inside. Now, the citadel was strong enough to withstand Aurangzeb's military bombardment, but it was not equipped to withstand a long siege. And Aurangzeb, he was a military commander, of course. He cut off the water supply to the citadel, and that was it for Shah Jahan. Shah Jahan, who was, a, I hate to say spoiled, but he was an emperor, he had been used to the finer things in life. He could not take drinking the stale and fetid water from the old wells within the citadel that hadn't been used in years. Agra hadn't been put under siege in decades. All it took was three days and Emperor Shah Jahan surrendered. Three days of bad water and he was ready to surrender to his son. Aurangzeb had his father placed under house arrest and then he appointed his son Muhammad Sultan as his guardian and Shah Jahan still had access to his harem and his luxuries. But Emperor Shah Jahan would spend the remaining eight years of his life as a prisoner in his own home. With that, Prince Aurangzeb effectively has effectively taken over the empire. Three days after the citadel siege, Aurangzeb decided to visit his father, his imprisoned father. But on the way, Aurangzeb discovered a plot by a couple of slave girls to assassinate him as soon as he arrived. On top of that, his soldiers also intercepted a letter from Shah Jahan to Dadashiko guaranteeing his continued support. So with, this, with these two plots, the letter and the slave girls who were going to assassinate him, Prince Aurangzeb changed his mind about visiting his father, and in fact, the two men, father and son, never met again. They never saw each other during Shah Jahan's eight-year confinement. Meanwhile, Aurangzeb's sister, uh, Jahanara, we mentioned her in the previous episode, she had been badly damaged or badly burned. She tried to convince her brother, Aurangzeb that is, to share the empire with the other three. But... Prince Aurangzeb refused. He justified his actions with the same excuse, stating that if he did not do something, if he did not take action against Dada Shiko, then Dada would ascend the throne. And if Dada ascended the throne, then that would cause the empire to lose its Islamic identity and it might even go back to Hinduism. This is going to be a repeated theme, obviously. So just get used to that one. So with that, with, with uh, Dada Shiko hiding out in Delhi with their father under house arrest with Shah Shuja running off towards Bengal and with Murad pretty much playing second fiddle, Aurangzeb gathered all of the nobles and officials within the empire and began giving instructions. He began appointing people to positions, establishing his control, giving people new orders and duties, and Aurangzeb was now the emperor of the Mughal Empire in all but name. But let's not forget, his three brothers are still very much alive. They are all alive. Murad Baksh is right there in Agra with him. 
Shah Shuja, he's, he's defeated, but he's not dead. And Dadashiko, he does have his father's support and access to the treasury in Delhi. So this drama is nowhere near over. And of course, the emperor himself is still alive. In the next episode, we will discuss the escalation of this fratricidal war and how Aurangzeb prepares to deal with all of these contenders to the Mughal throne. You've been listening to the Islamic History Podcast, and we hope you've enjoyed the show. You can support the Islamic History Podcast and get exclusive content by subscribing to our premium channel, Islamic History Exclusive. If you're an Apple or Spotify user, open the app and search for Islamic History Exclusive. If you're listening on Podbean, become a patron in the Podbean app and you'll get access to all of our premium content. You can also join by visiting patreon.com slash Islamic History. Our premium content includes a series on the life of Salahuddin, an ongoing series about the Umayyad dynasty, and one I think you'll really enjoy, our latest series on the Soviet-Afghan war. Altogether, that's well over 50 premium episodes. Before we go, I want to thank Brother Zulfikar Sarosh for his research on the Mughal Empire and his continued support of the show. And thanks to all of our premium subscribers. Stay tuned for a short clip from our series on the Soviet-Afghan War. And until next time, my name is Mutaki Ismail for the Islamic History Podcast. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. Assalamu alaikum. Welcome back to Afghanistan Season 1, presented by Islamic History Exclusive. In this season, we are discussing the Soviet-Afghan War. This is episode 1-7. Let's begin this episode by discussing the ISI and CIA alliance against the Soviets. Now, as the U.S. was getting more involved in the war, the CIA and the Pentagon assured Pakistan of American protection. However, President Zia-ul-Haq was not really confident of this commitment to protect Pakistan from the Soviet Union. As we mentioned in previous episodes, there was a lot of tension between the United States and Pakistan at this time. President Jimmy Carter had cut ties with Pakistan after Zulfiqar Bhutto's execution and he was heavily critical of the new president, Zia-ul-Haq. And it was an open secret that Pakistan was working on a nuclear weapon. Another cause of tension between the U.S. and Pakistan was the attack and burning down of the U.S. Embassy in Islamabad in 1979. To understand what caused this to happen, we have to go back to November 1979. In November 1979, a militant group called Ikhwan attacked and occupied the Haram in Mecca, that is the, the location where the Kaaba is located in Mecca. This attack was led by a man named Jahaman al Otaibi. It took about two weeks for Saudi forces to regain control and retake the masjid, but during this period, several people were killed in the fighting between the Ikhwan and the Saudi forces. 
This included militants, the Ikhwan militants, as well as Saudi troops and even some civilian hostages. The militants who survived this attack were, of course, eventually beheaded by Saudi Arabia. Now, the day after these militants occupied the Haram, a Pakistani radio station reported that the United States was involved in the takeover of the Haram. However, the United States was not involved. This was a false rumor. Nonetheless, the word of this rumor got out, and this led to a small protest at the U.S. Embassy in Islamabad, and before long, that small protest became a violent protest. The way it happened, or the way some people say it happened, was that someone fired a shot that hit one of the protesters, and then the Pakistani protesters responded by shooting into the embassy. Eventually, things got riled up. The protesters scaled the walls, got into the embassy, and set fire to the embassy. Eventually, however, Pakistani troops were able to disperse the crowd and evacuate the embassy staff, but one U.S. Marine was killed in the violence and the embassy burnt down. But now that the United States needed Pakistan to help the Mujahideen fight against the Soviets, Ziaul-Haq was insisting that the United States change the way it was behaving towards him, basically stop criticizing him, as well as obey his rules. And one of the major rules that Pakistan had, particularly the ISI, that's Pakistan's uh, spy espionage service, They insisted that the CIA, which is the United States' espionage service, they insisted that the CIA work through the ISI. The CIA could deliver weapons for the Mujahideen through specific Pakistani ports, but the ISI handled the logistics of getting the weapons to the Mujahideen. In essence, the CIA was not allowed to have any direct contact with the Mujahideen. We'll discuss why this was important in just a moment, but for right now, let's go back to Charlie Wilson. Now, in the previous episode, we discussed how Representative Charlie Wilson from the 2nd District of Texas had visited several countries that were receiving uh, foreign aid from the United States in 1982. Included in this trip was Pakistan. He visited Pakistan towards the end of his trip. While he was in Pakistan, He visited the refugee camps in Peshawar and spoke with some of the refugees there. As he mentioned in previous episodes, as the Soviets ramped up their offensive against the Mujahideen, they destroyed several villages and killed many people, forcing people to flee from Afghanistan and creating a major refugee situation in both Pakistan and Iran. While he was in Peshawar, Charlie Wilson also visited a Red Cross hospital. And he heard many of the horror stories of the atrocities that the Soviets were committing in Afghanistan. He listened to the different patients in the hospital describing these horrible uh, helicopter gunships that just rained death on the Afghan villages. And all of the Afghan fighters, the Mujahideen, just kept telling him that they needed a weapon to fight against these MI-24s, these Hind helicopter gunships. Now, 